Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, I'm speaking today on seeking first God's kingdom. And you'll probably know which verse in particular I'm emphasizing. But let's take the surrounding verses as well, verses 31 through 34. Jesus is talking about worry, the sin of worry, and the cure for it, the preventative for it. We all struggle with it, let's be honest, right? We all struggle with the sin of worry. Why? Because we all have to deal with trouble. Man that is born of woman is of a few days and full of what? Trouble. Well, why does God permit trouble? Why does He permit trial in our lives? Aren't we entitled to trouble-free lives? Some people get all offended because God sends them a little trouble. No, we're not entitled to trouble-free lives. We live in a fallen world, and wherever the curse is found, you know what? You're going to find trouble. I like what Spurgeon said, a little rhyme that I don't think he composed. He may have, but it's in his masterful commentary on the Psalms, the treasury of David. He said this, trials make the promise sweet. Trials give new life to prayer. Trials drive me to his feet. Lay me low and keep me there. I like that. That's the purpose for trials. You know, God doesn't leave us to wallow in our troubles and trials. He wants us to trust him as our heavenly father who cares for us even more than he cares for the sparrows and clothes the lilies. He's personally involved in our lives. When Adam fell, it was a hard fall. He launched a foul revolt against God. He declared his independence from God. And let's not be too hard on Adam because we're all guilty of it, right? In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And when we indulge in worry, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when we indulge in worry, we become atheists, at least for the moment. Elizabeth Cheney wrote some familiar lines a century and a half ago. You may remember these. They're quoted often. They need to be. They deserve to be. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. And while we smile at that, that's the way we act, isn't it? That's exactly the way we come across when we worry. Let's look at God's Word. Jesus' words, Matthew 6, 31, therefore take no thought, no anxious thought, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles, the heathen, the nations seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. And here's the theme verse, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, And all these things shall be added unto you. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? Verse 34, take therefore no thought, again, no anxious thought for the morrow. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. 
Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Or every day has its own troubles. Now we've been learning from the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we need to quietly and implicitly trust in our Heavenly Father's active love and care. And it is active. He didn't just wind up this universe like a clock and then let it run without overseeing it and intervening in it. But just as He is active in His care for us, He wants us to be active in our faith. Faith is not fatalism. Faith is not just passive. Faith is not sitting back and saying, que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. No, again, I quote Spurgeon, who I do not apologize for quoting. He's quotable, amen? He said, faith is full of industry, of activity, of work. Faith is full of industry. We don't know much about our Savior when He was a young man growing up. We know a little bit about Him as a baby. And then the rest of the Gospels are devoted to His mature life and ministry. But we do know one thing that happened to Him when He was 12 years of age. His parents didn't realize that they'd left Him behind in Jerusalem, and they went back took them a whole day's journey to find him, and they found him sitting with the doctors of the law, asking them questions, answering their questions. They were amazed at his knowledge. And they were a little bit perturbed with him, at least Mary. said, son, we've sought thee sorrowing. Don't you care? And what was his answer? I love it. Verse 49 of Luke 2. Wish ye not, know ye not, that I must be about my father's business, his real father, his heavenly father, he must be actively employed in doing that father's will. And so must we, beloved. We must be actively employed in doing God's will. As we trust him, we should be active. And we should never even entertain the notion that the God who owns and controls everything, the God who dearly loves us, let's not even worry that He would not pay all the expenses incurred for us to do His will. Even the worst of human employers does that. How much better is God? So as we come to our text passage, and especially that marvelous verse 33, allow me to use my sanctified imagination. I trust it's that. For a moment, I think Jesus may be actually injecting a little humor here. After talking about the sin of worry and all the cures for it, the incentives for desisting from it, it's almost as if he suddenly says, but now if you want to worry, I'll tell you what to worry about. Worry about your relationship to the Father. And of course, I'm using the word worry in a modern morph sense of giving diligent attention to being preoccupied with, concentrating on, because this is our great need and this is where we fall down so much. There's not a single person under the sound of my voice today, whether you're sitting in a pew or whether you're listening by live stream that doesn't need this message, and I need it. So please don't do like this. It's not for the person behind you, it's for you. The Gentiles that Jesus talked about in verse 32, the heathen, oh, we wouldn't include ourselves in them, among them. They're the ones who are all wrapped up in 
pursuing these things from sun, sun up to sundown, and sometimes even upon their bed, dreaming about it at night. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? The heathen, the Gentiles, the nations, they're the ones who, in many cases, worship gods that they have to feed, they have to give drink to. They're so helpless, these gods, and yet in the minds of these heathen, somehow these gods are in a position of being able to help their devotees. How silly, how senseless. Don't be like them, Jesus said. Rather, seek ye first the kingdom. And we'll talk about that today. Jesus gives several imperatives here in these few verses. The first two are implied. Maybe you didn't even think about them. The second two are outright stated. We'll get to them later. Both of them, both the implied ones and the stated ones, are critical for pleasing God and curbing worry. So here's the divine prescription for this debilitating disease of worry that plagues us all. And I'll give you a word of warning ahead of time, so you won't be surprised. I probably won't get done today, okay? I hope you'll come back next Sunday. We really want to do justice to this passage. But I hope these first two implied points, commands, will be uh, instructive, helpful today. The first, thing, the first implied command in this passage is observe God's priorities in the first place. Please note the opening words of that climatic verse 33. But seek ye first. Just stop there. Seek ye first. But seek ye first. That lets us know this right off the bat, God does have some priorities, amen? And He has revealed them. The word but suggests a contrast, that uh, conjunction, contrast to the Gentile worldlings we talked about a moment ago. They are consumed from sunup to sundown with the means to buy, to prepare, to ingest, or to use what shall we eat. What shall we drink? Wherewithal shall we be clothed? And as we've already noted in previous messages, we as human beings made in the image of God, we are more than animals who have just natural appetites. Animals eat when they want to, drink when they want to, sleep when they want to, mate when they want to. We talk about animal instincts. We're more than the animals. God has set eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11. We have a spiritual capacity. Yes, that spiritual organ is dead. It's inactive. Because we're dead in our trespasses and in sin since the fall of man. And so that's why God gives us as humans His Word and then His Spirit. He doesn't give the animals His Word. You're not going to see a monkey reading the Bible. Oh, you can prop him up and take a picture. But you better make sure he's got the Bible right side up because he doesn't know the difference. All right? God has given us his word. From the mind of God to the mind of man. We're made in his image. We can to receive it. And as we search the scriptures, we will see God's priorities. It's so easy for people to dismiss the Word of God, and especially the, the way we, we, we claim to live it, as just 
a bunch of arbitrary rules. Yes, there are a lot of thou shalt's and thou shalt nots in the Bible. Amen? Let's not apologize for them. But it's not just arbitrary rules, but even when God does give us rules, what is He doing to us? He's saying, don't hurt yourself. What a blessing. Observe these divinely prescribed priorities. Seek ye first. Seek ye first. So let's talk about some of those firsts. I hope you write these things down. These will be great rules for your life. I don't apologize for saying that. We need rules for our life. We need parameters. We need priorities. First of all, seek the spiritual over the physical. Always do that. Seek the spiritual over the physical. Our, yes, our bodies are, are not innately sinful. I, uh, make sure you understand that. I say that quite often because we don't want to fall prey to the monkish idea that there's something innately sinful about the body and we've got to beat our bodies and, 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 and mistreat them and uh, flagellate ourselves like Martin Luther did. No, these bodies of ours are fearfully and wonderfully made. God gave them to us. It is the vehicle by which we ride through life, as it were. And the same thing could be said of our bodies that Jesus said of the beast upon which he rode into the city of Jerusalem. The Lord hath need of it, hath need of him, our bodies. Let's not defile the temple of the Holy Ghost with bad habits. Let's not neglect the body on one hand or overindulge it on the other. Yes, let's be honest, folks, you, you can sleep too much. You, you can be sleep deprived, but some people sleep too much. You can eat too much. You can sun yourself too much. You only need a certain amount of vitamin D3 from the sun. You can medicate too much. Let's maintain our bodies, but let's not neglect our souls. And that needs to be said, especially in our day. Would you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. <clears throat> Paul is talking to a relatively young man. We believe Timothy wasn't more than in his 30s. He may not have been quite that old. A young pastor in the city of Ephesus. So he's given him a lot of instruction that would be relevant to a young man. And one such word of instruction, very practical, is given to us here, 1 Timothy 4, verse 8. Here it is. For bodily exercise profiteth little. Let's stop there. You need to exercise. I need to exercise. I try to do some calisthenics. I try to get out and walk. I used to jog, but, uh, you know, you, don't, you can't do everything you used to do, right, I mean, as you get older. But anyway, bodily exercise profiteth it does profit a little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And I need to just go right, come right out and say it, folks. Sometimes our commitment to the spiritual means that we will sacrifice our bodies. We, we've we kind of swung out to the other extreme or we think that we're balanced, you know, let's not neglect our bodies, so we'll get our exercise in, and sometimes we don't get our Bible reading in. The great British Puritan pastor and author of the 1600s, you may have heard his name, Richard Baxter, wrote several great books. One of them's A Call to the Unconverted, the other one was the Reformed Pastor. Uh, he lived until uh, about 1695. 
He was responding to some enemies who taunted him with a charge of idleness for his single-minded devotion to the ministry. He literally burned out for God. And this is his response, and it speaks to me. I don't know, maybe this may not mean anything to you at all. But as a man and as a pastor, this just convicts me. This is what he said, and I quote, The worst that I could wish you is that you had my ease instead of your labor. Wow. Though I am the least of all saints, yet I fear not to tell the accuser, the one that was accusing him of being idle, that I take the labor of most tradesmen in the town to be pleasure to the body in comparison with mine, though I would not exchange it with the greatest prince. Their labor preserves health. Mine consumes it. They work in ease and I work in continual pain. They have hours and days of recreation. I have scarce time to eat and drink. No one molests them for their labor, but the more I do, the more hatred and trouble I draw upon me. Yet I trust that I am willing to spend and be spent for my master. End of quote. I am convicted by that. Oh, you say, he should have had a more balanced life. That's extreme. That's, that's typical of those Puritans, I'm telling you. Okay, consider this. That by the time he finished his ministry, I forget how long it was, I think about 20 years there in Kidderminster, England, a town of 2,000 people, hardly one person was left unsaved. Was it worth it? To sacrifice the body for Christ and for souls. I think we've swung the other way, folks. I'd rather stand in Richard Baxter's shoes at the judgment seat than a whole lot of other modern guys. I think of Esau in the Bible. I had a twin brother. That really gets my attention because I have a twin or had one. Esau and his twin brother Jacob, Esau the oldest one, Jacob was supposed to have been born first, I was supposed to have been born first, I really identify with that. Things got rearranged. Esau is forever branded in the Bible as a profane man. Wait a minute, he was a man's man. He was a rugged outdoorsman. He had hair on his chest. He had rippling muscles. Yet God called him a profane man. Whereas Jacob, a refined man, and let's face it, for a time, a mama's boy, was the one God honored. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because Jacob feared God and valued as sacred the birthright, while Esau, the man's man, despised it. When it comes down to choosing the spiritual over the fleshly, it needs to be a slam dunk for the child of God. Let's have the right priorities. Number three, always choose the eternal. Number two, always choose the eternal over the temporal. Choose the spiritual over the physical, but choose the eternal over the temporal. Make that a spiritual reflex. That's what Moses did. Won't have you turn there, but the story is given, or the commentary is given in the great hall of faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, I believe. 
The Bible talks about how when Moses came to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, even though he was just not much more than a toddler when he left his mother, Jochebed, and was adopted by the princess of Egypt. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and he was willing to esteem the reproach of Christ. Wait a minute. This is way back in the Old Testament. This is not the story of Christ. This is about the law. This is about Moses. This is about righteousness. He esteemed the reproach of Christ. Greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. The very worst that Christ had to offer was more than the best that Egypt had to offer. And Egypt was the leader in the world at the time. Greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. Where did he get that value system? You say, well, his mama, yeah. But what was it? Here it is. He had respect unto the recompense of the reward, the eternal reward. Two verses later, he endured. What was the secret to his perseverance? He endured as seeing him who is invisible. The invisible eternal God outweighed all that was temporal. And I challenge us all in these, this day of outwardness and showiness and fleshliness that impresses us so much. Let's have regard to the things that are unseen, not the things that are seen. Because as Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Choose the spiritual over the physical every time. Choose the eternal over the temporal every time. Number three, and I hope the young people especially will really listen to me, choose the scriptural over the fashionable. Choose what is scriptural over the fashionable. It is so sad to see believers in our day who know better, and especially some of our young people, but not all, praise the Lord. We have some notable exceptions in this church. Praise God for them. But the rank and file are held hostage to the fads and fashions and mores of the world. And oh, how I wish that they would just stop and ask this one question. Who am I following and why? Just that. What kind of person established that new style and trend? What statement are they making? If I knew that they hated Jesus Christ and they're on record as saying that, would I follow their fashions? I would hope not. Do you have a backbone of your own? Do you have a mind of your own? Are you just a puppet and a chameleon? In Jeremiah chapter 35, we have a most unusual story. There's nothing like it in the Bible very unfamiliar. I'm not going to have you turn there just for the sake of time. Let me summarize, paraphrase. God tells his man, his prophet, Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, to tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to heed, are you listening, to heed what a deceased godly man by the name of Jonadab had told his sons. We don't know how many there were. This is what he told his sons, and I'll summarize. I don't want you to drink any wine, no fruit of the vine at all. You or your sons, don't want you to build any house, don't plant a vineyard, 
Don't plant any crops. I want you to live in tents so that you will be ready to be taken into captivity when Nebuchadnezzar comes and you'll live a long life in Babylon. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty morose story. But these sons of Jonadab, however many there were, obeyed their father. Stop and think. That was not the fashionable thing to do in Judah at the time. What was going on in Judah at the time? Let me just, you check me out if I'm wrong and correct me. People were celebrating with wine. They were buying and selling real estate. They were planting crops. They were planting vineyards. They were taking advantage of, if you examine the historical context, a temporary respite of peace and prosperity after the reign of the great godly king Josiah, one of the greatest in Judah's history. And yet God spoke His word through Jeremiah using Jonadab's sons as a parable. They were willing, and I ask you, are you willing, to be considered out of step with the, with the times, to be considered eccentric, just to be obedient? Brethren, with a decadent culture that we have all around us, it's time to get back to just minding the Lord and heeding His Word. If it hair lips the devil, just do it. I think of the great church father, Athanasius. He was brought before a tribunal because of his fidelity to the Bible, which had fallen out of favor with the powers that be. And this is what he was asked. Don't you know Athanasius that the whole world is against you. And he famously replied, and some of you know what I'm going to say, that Athanasius is against the whole world. May God give us that kind of backbone. Because we're needing it these days. Let God be true and every man a liar. Even if that man is one of your peers even if that man is a reputable authority on the subject, a doctor bottle stopper. Let God be true and every man a liar. Let's have well-established priorities. Let's have foregone conclusions in our mind. Because you know what will happen if we don't? When we're faced with a temptation, when we're faced with a challenge, we'll deliberate. We'll weigh things in our mind instead of being like those three Hebrew children that when they were told to bow down to the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, they answered in this fashion, I love it, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. They didn't deliberate. They didn't weigh things in their mind. You know why? Because they'd already made up their mind who was going to come first. Whether or not our God delivers us from that fiery furnace has nothing to do with our decision. We are not going to bow down and worship your golden image. They didn't consult with one another and then come back and give their consensus. They already had it decided. Do you? Always put the scriptural over the fashionable, the popular. The second understood, implied command here this is as far as I'll get today. Please forgive me for not getting farther. I meant to. But I hope you'll come back for the rest. 
The second one is understand God's kingdom. Before we can obey this command, seek ye first the kingdom, we need to know what the kingdom is. I think it's real fuzzy in the minds of a lot of people. We learned in our earlier comments and messages about the Beatitudes that there are conditions to entering into this kingdom of God, into the blessing that is pronounced for entering into the kingdom of God. And we learned that the kingdom of God is virtually identical with the kingdom of heaven. Some dispensationalists have tried to imagine a difference because Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven, Luke talks about the kingdom of God. Uh, I don't want to offend anybody, but folks, there's no difference. They're They're used interchangeably. Please examine the scriptures on that. The kingdom of God equals the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he gave the same blessing and promise in verse 10 to those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible talks about, Jesus especially talks about there's no entrance into the kingdom without the humility that leads to repentance. We must humble ourselves as a little child to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not too long ago, I read what David Brainerd said. I'll read it again because it's so important. As he was dying in 1747, only 29 years of age, in the home of Jonathan Edwards in Northampton, Massachusetts, he was so respected at his young age that ministers flocked to his bedside to get his wisdom. And one of the things he stressed, according to Jonathan Edwards, was this, and I quote David Brainerd. The nature and necessity of that humiliation, self-emptiness, or full conviction of a person's being utterly undone in himself, which is necessary to having saving faith. That's what he emphasized. And along with that, he emphasized the extreme difficulty of being brought to this and the great danger there is in persons taking up with some self-righteous appearance of it. That ought to jolt us. We think if somebody just cries a bucket load of tears at the altar, they must be sincere. They must have really gotten saved. Not necessarily. Some self-righteous appearance of it. The danger of this I especially dwelt upon, being persuaded that multitudes perish in this hidden way. And because so little is said from most pulpits about this, persons who are never truly effectually brought to die in themselves and are never truly united to Christ, perish. Here's a man with the glow of heaven in his face about to see Jesus giving his dying counsel. That's what he said. Beloved, poverty of spirit is an absolute prerequisite for having a right relationship with the king. There shall no flesh glory in his presence. You might be able to flaunt yourself before others and impress them and strut on the stage of this world for an hour, but God is not impressed. And I remind you that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You must humble yourself as a little child, as the greatest sinner who ever lived, or you will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told a very religious man, the ranking Pharisee of his day by the name of Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot even see, much less enter the kingdom of God. 
And so I'm talking to some here today. You say, well, preacher, we're all saved. Really? I hope that's the case. I really, I hope I'll see every one of you in heaven. But just in case one person slipped in who may not know Christ, could I say a few things? How do you know that you're in the kingdom? Can you know that you're in the kingdom? Yes, you can. You can know that you're a loyal subject of the kingdom of God. There are many, many people who expect to be admitted into the kingdom of heaven, but they've never humbled themselves before God to acknowledge that they are undone. And before we finish the Sermon on the Mount, we'll come to those closing words, almost the closing words of Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, where Jesus said, in the last days there will be many, not just a few, but in the last days there will be many who will come to him and will say, Lord, Lord, have we not preached in your name? Have we not prophesied? Have we not in your name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works. And then Jesus will pronounce unto them the most awful solemn words in all of the Bible. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I know you not. Notice he didn't say I knew you once and then you sinned and fell away. No, he said I I never knew you. Depart from me into everlasting fire. That's the saddest words in the Bible. People who expect to be admitted into heaven, who are good neighbors, good spouses, good dads and good wives and mothers, they're going to hear those awful words. You say, why do you get worked up? I'll tell you why. Because I believe that's really going to happen. So I urge you, don't put off salvation. Don't wait to settle this. Jesus didn't say, blessed shall be the poor in spirit, for there shall be the kingdom of heaven. No, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They've already entered the kingdom. Right now as I speak, you are either in the kingdom of God or you're still in the kingdom of Satan. And I fear for many, Satan is still calling the shots in their lives. Jesus told the Jews of his day, year of your father the devil and the lusts, the desires of your father, ye will do. Oh, some people bristle at that when you tell them. I say, oh, no, no, I'm doing what I want to do. <laughs> I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Who are you kidding? You're so enslaved by Satan, you don't even realize he's pulled the wool over your eyes. You're deceived. That's why you talk that way. But the good news is this, and please listen to me this morning. You can change kingdoms today, right now, before I even finish this message. You can be translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, Colossians 1.13. How? By faith. Just like a little child. Humble yourself as a little child. One thing about a little child, whether he's being naughty or being good, He's not being pretentious. There's no airs there. There's no smoke screen. I mean, what you see is what you get. Sometimes you don't like it, but that's you, you know what you're getting. And we need to come to Jesus as a little child, humble ourselves before him and say, Lord, I'm a guilty sinner. You could pray that right now. I deserve to go to hell. I deserve the wrath of God there forever. But I know 
that Jesus died on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago for guilty sinners just like me. And here and now, the best I know how, I confess my sin. I plead the mercy of God in Christ who died on the cross of Calvary for my sin. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's the meaning of it there in Luke chapter 16. And save me for Jesus' sake. Would you pray that? It's not the prayer that saves. It's the faith. And you can go down to your house justified today. Declared righteous. In the sight of God. The positive righteousness of Jesus Christ. Credited to your account. By faith. Without doing one thing. That's the prayer God waits to hear. And that's the prayer he's promised to answer. Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But I ask you, saved from what? We need to understand that. Dear lady in the Cayman Islands that I witnessed to a number of times and whose sister was a faithful member of our church. I baptized her at 71 years of age. I kept witnessing to her sister, and all I could get when I said, don't, don't you want to be saved? She said, oh, Pastor, it, Pastor Bob, she said, if it wasn't for the Lord, I, I don't know where I'd be. I said, really? And then she would explain what she meant. She talked about all the close calls she'd had. I never could get that lady to see that to be saved in the Bible means more than just being saved from calamities that could befall us in this lifetime. The greatest calamity is yet to come, and that is when you hear those awful words from Jesus, depart from me, I never knew you, and you're consigned to everlasting fire. That's what you need deliverance from. And to get that, you need to be forgiven and delivered from your sin. You need salvation from sin. Oh, I hope you'll take it seriously and get that settled today. But I'm speaking primarily to people who are saved. You've already been delivered from sin. And so, hallelujah, you've been delivered from the penalty of sin. That's why you can sing and praise God like you did this morning. And I have some very good news for you. You're already in the kingdom. And I urge you to just start enjoying all the rights and privileges pertaining thereto. That kingdom has come to you and that kingdom has come to me. The kingdom is where the king is. And he's ruling and reigning in our hearts if we have enthroned him as Lord. In fact, Paul said to the Ephesians, and I love this, that for those of us that, that, that are in Christ, we're already seated with Him in the heavenlies on His throne. It's not just that we died with Him and we've been raised to Him in His resurrection. We're seated with Him in the heavenlies. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 28, if I cast out devils, demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. The kingdom of God has come. His authority, his reign was evident in that he was Lord over demons. Isn't it amazing that when Jesus encountered demons in his earthly ministry, and there were many, you don't, we don't hear about many these days. We may not experience it ourselves. I asked Laverne Wall last week, I said, what about demons? She said, oh, she said, we see a lot of demon possession over in that country. I can't say it on the live stream. At his command, uh, demons exit. Oh, some of them screamed, we know who you are, don't come in here. 
you're the Holy One of God. That's more than a lot of people will say. In answering the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of heaven should appear, Jesus said in Luke 17, verse 20, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, doesn't come with outward show. So don't be all enamored with the glamour and aura of the coming kingdom. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. It's in your midst. Why was that? Because the king was in their midst, Jesus. And Jesus was begging even those of his day, get rid of this materialistic notion of the kingdom. I am showing forth the power and authority of God. The kingdom of God is here. The reign of God is being manifested in the one you're looking at. I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about Jesus. And when he sent his disciples out on a short-term missions trip to preach, he told them to tell the cities into which they came, but receive them not. Be sure of this, be sure of this one thing, the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. And in rejecting the king's ambassadors, they were rejecting the king himself. My dear brothers and sisters, we have entered that wonderful kingdom. But the $64,000 question is, are we enjoying it? Some people have just enough of the gospel and salvation truth that they are enduring it. They're not enjoying it. Paul told the Roman believers in Romans 5, 17, he said, you are reigning in life. You're not under the circumstances. You're an overcomer. And even if we are being persecuted, as many of those saints were to whom Paul wrote, though we be slain all the day long, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And he went on to say in Romans 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, the outward things that we think of naturally. The kingdom of God, are you listening, is righteousness. Jesus attaches righteousness to the kingdom in verse 33. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Jesus said to Pilate, John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. It's of a purer, higher, truer, more durable nature than any kingdom Caesar could ever set up. Well, I must issue an apology. I didn't get very far today. All of this is just a run-up to the real event of verse 33, and I hope we'll appreciate that even more when we get to it next week. Look at it one more time and before we leave it, okay? Verse 33, say it with me. Matthew 6, 33, ready? But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Do you believe that? There's power in that verse. There's power in the truth of it. That verse is very personal to me. I alluded to this recently. Permit me to say it one more time. Less than a month ago, I received word that one of the two great benefactors of our ministry in the Cayman Islands, two brothers, the younger one, went to be with the Lord, Captain Eldon Kirkconnell. He was three weeks away from being 97 years of age. You say, why is that verse personal to you? Well, Pastor, well, 
46 years ago, Captain Eldon Kirkconnell was awakened at 3.30 in the morning with Matthew 6.33 on his heart. That verse we just read, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I'm glad he didn't call me at 3.30, but at 8.30 in the morning he called me, and he knew that we were looking for property with the church that we had established there in Grand Cayman, Calvary Baptist Church. He said, I've got a piece of property I think you might be interested in. Can I show it to you? <laughs> if it had been next to the city dump, I'd let him show it to me. Property so hard to come by in this place where the highest standard of living in the Caribbean. Make a long story short, by 11 o'clock that day, that property was in our name. And he paid the one-time 7.5% stamp duty, which is like a property tax. <laughs> well, we thought that's it's done. It's a done deal. So, you know, we got the property cleared with a bulldozer. And the poor guy that operated the bulldozer got stung by some bees in a mango tree. And his eye went shut. And I felt so bad. And I had to be the one to get rid of the bees. It's a wonder I keep bees today. Anyway, we dedicated that property, thought, wonderful. <laughs> we can build a church. Only, property, only problem was the 14 of the residents signed a petition against us, so we weren't able to build a church. But he swapped with his brother, who's already in heaven, and who also wanted to help our ministry, and gave us a much better piece of property, bigger in a prime place location in town. That's where Calvary Baptist Church, Calvary Christian School, and the mission home stands today. Some of you have had a part in that. I checked with a man who came to see me at the airport. We didn't have time to go even see the church. We were gone to the other island where my mother-in-law lives. And he came to me. I said, uh, Murray, that was his name. I said, what's that property worth today? He said, over a million dollars. Just the land. Very personal to me. Matthew 6, The power of that verse that awakened a man at 3.30 in the morning. And I close by saying this. Our God lives in the eternal present. He is the great I am. Not I was, I used to be, or I will be, though, yes, He inhabits our yesterdays and our tomorrows, but He is the eternal, eternally present God, and we need to live in that eternal present. The problem with worry, it's always concerned about tomorrow. But if we seek first the kingdom today, God will take care of our tomorrows. Each day presents its own troubles. That's what verse 34 says. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And each day, are you listening? Each day gives us a fresh opportunity to know our God better and to trust Him and prove His promises. And that's how we can welcome every day. Will you sing it with me? Some of you know this song. Some of you older people, just clear your throat and let's sing it out, okay? You know this. Some of the young ones don't. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine, for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry o'er the future, for I know what
what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him, for he knows what is ahead. Sing it. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Let's pray. Oh, God. Help us all to seek first the kingdom, your kingdom, wherein dwelleth perfect righteousness. Would you speak to that soul nearest hell this morning who's not yet in the kingdom? Maybe they think they are. Would you show them how they're without Christ, without God, without hope? Help them to change kingdoms this morning and to be translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And, oh, Father, help us all to trust you, both for eternal life and for temporal provisions. You're worthy of that. You've proven yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet as we sing a song. We don't usually sing at all, much less as an invitation song. 162, all your anxiety, all your care. Bring to the mercy seat. Leave it there.